you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Welcome. Yes, I'm Renee Steelman, the host of She Became Visible. And it is time for all of you to stand up and say who you are, why you're here, and what your purpose is decided by you. And that is what this podcast is all about. Uh, today, as usual, I have an amazing woman who has stood up at the young, young, this, this young amazing woman is in her mid-20s, and she has already found herself. She has already found her footing, and she has already stood up and said, hey, I'm going to decide what my life is going to be like, and because I am visible, I am here, and she is astounding. So let me give you a little bit of background. I today am going to be interviewing Katie Harmon. Many of you may be familiar with Katie from the Mormon Stories podcast. She was interviewed a couple of years ago, and um, I listened to her podcast, and suddenly she said, my son was born with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And I was like, wait, what? Because my son was born with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and I don't know anyone else that has a child that was born with this defect. And so I listened with absolute, I was glued. I was just glued to the entire Mormon stories. And so many of the things that this young woman went through, her and her husband, are very similar to what we went through. So today we're gonna to be talking about a lot of things. We're going to be talking about having a child with disabilities. We're going to be talking about finding our community, finding where we fit in, finding our road to get some help and all kinds of things that anybody that has lived a not perfect life has probably encountered. But in this case, we're a little bit different because, you know, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia is actually very, very rare. And let me just tell you a little bit, if you've never heard of it, which of course I have never heard of it, um, it's a rare birth defect that affects roughly one in every 2,500 births. Now I've also seen 3,600 births, so statistics are a little off. Um, but uh, it affects one out of 2,500 live births per year worldwide with an estimated 1,600 new cases in the United States every year. Roughly 50% of the babies born with CDH do not survive. Of the 50% that do survive, most will endure long hospital stays, feeding issues, asthma, and other problems. A few of the survivors suffer from severe long-term medical issues. 
The cause of CDH is still completely unknown. And I thought what was interesting was CDH, congenital uh, diaphragmatic hernia, is about as prevalent as spina bifida or cystic fibrosis. And yet you will not hear anything about CDH compared to those other birth defects. And the funding, the awareness, the entire idea of what this defect is, is unknown and unstudied and not heralded in any way. And I think that's very, very sad. It, our son, because of his CDH, suffered um, oxygen deprivation, which resulted in brain damage. And therefore he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And cerebral palsy is another birth defect that actually affects quite a few young people uh, in for many reasons. One of the most prevalent is oxygen deprivation, premature birth. And yet you don't hear anything about studies or resources for people that have cerebral palsy. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So um, it says that statistically as common as other serious but more well-known defects like cystic fibrosis and spina bifida, CDH doesn't receive nearly the amount of financial contributions or media attention to support ongoing clinical research and family support. And from what I understood, there wasn't any data that said that there was any kind of uh, uh, difference between the uh, occurrence in a male, ba male child or a female child. They seemed to be pretty even. There, there weren't any statistics that would give you any kind of direction as to a cause or um, anything that you could even do to prevent CDH. So we're going to bring Katie on now and she's going to tell you her story and then we're gonna commiserate and we're gonna whine and complain a little bit, but then we're gonna come back and we're just gonna say how we've come out the other side and um, made this part of our life and what we've learned from it and how we're handling it now. So let's bring on Katie and welcome her today. Ta-da! Hi. Hi, Renee. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm doing so well. That What a lovely introduction. The way you broke down CDH, perfect. Um, thank you so much for all the kind things. You're too kind. Um, I'm so excited to talk with you. And again, so shocking that we have so much in common. Um, oh. Yeah, really excited to get into this. Yeah, yeah. it's it's it really is. Uh, I was telling Katie that my only one other encounter that I've had with another child with CDH was um, I was in the gap and the gap for kids. And there was a young mom that needed some assistance in the dressing room. And so I went in there to help her and the little boy lifted up his t-shirt and had, he had that proverbial scar mm -hmm. right across his lower rib cage. And I was like, did your son have a diaphragmatic hernia? And she said, yes, how did you know? And I, I was first shocked because this little boy looked as neurotypical and what you would look at any other little four-year-old or five-year-old sure. that was, and he was walking, he was talking, he was happy. Um, and I was like, I didn't know that that was a possibility with CDH because when our son was born, they wheeled the little incubator into our room. And he said, we're going to be taking him to Oregon health science university. And he only has a 25, 20% chance of survival. Um, so it, I didn't realize that it was a spectrum, like so many other disabilities, uh, where kids will come out of this with a lot of different results. 
So tell everyone about your Max. He's absolutely so cute. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Max being born, such a time gap between when our sons were born. I think it's just interesting to compare our experiences because I had been telling Renee, there were so many different kiddos born at the hospital where Max was born um, that had CDH. And again, though, to see the outcomes, you know, now that it's been seven years, um, it's, it's so startling how different it can be family to family. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a uh, little Max right after yes. he, that's the day, that was probably like an hour after he was born. Um, oh. But, and Renee, I don't know if um, they diagnosed um, TJCDH when you were pregnant with him or if it wasn't until he was born that you knew. You know, that was interesting. The more research that I did, um, I, I was astonished to find out that people will actually take their babies home or their, their baby might yes. be uh, six or seven months old before they're diagnosed because our son uh, was born emergency cesarean and they immediately could tell that he was having a hard time breathing. Sure. And so they brought the x-ray machine in and they knew right away, but it right. wasn't, it, it was, it should have been diagnosed prenatally, but I had a, an insufficient doctor and I'll get, that's generous. And um, I remember that I was probably about four months along and he said, you know, you're measuring a lot bigger than you should be right now. Would you like to have an ultrasound? Now, this is in 1985. Sure. Uh, and I said, uh, I don't care, whatever, you know, because I was taught to respect authority and uh, I was in my patriarchal lane. And sure. so I thought, well, you're the doctor. I don't well, know. Well, right. For him to even put that on you, I can't. I mean, that's astonishing in the worst yeah. way. Yeah. Yes. Because if he would have done it, he would have seen the diaphragmatic yeah. hernia. And awesome. so it was a it was an instant thing right after he was born. Sure. And so what was Max's case? Yeah. So um, Max's CDH was caught. Uh, it was at the 20 week what now is common to do it, you know, like right, I think midway through the pregnancy, the big anatomical scan where they kind of review all the different, which I guess maybe that I'm not sure when that became the norm. Um, with my oldest, I had the same thing, but here in little Laramie, Wyoming, where I live, um, they did this scan and I, to this day, I'm so grateful for the ultrasound tech that was doing it. I actually, a year or two ago, like was happened to cross paths with her. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, uh, anyway, it was all because of her, you know, diligence and, you know, being so good at her job that she noticed um, that something wasn't quite right, called the doctor in. So it was at when Max, oh, I was 20 weeks along with Max when he okay. was diagnosed. Yeah. Okay. Um, and his situation was kind of unique. That it was They could tell it was very severe just by how many organs had moved into his abdominal cavity. So we knew that, you know, again, with CDH being such a spectrum, based on how much diaphragm, you know, is exactly is it the tiny hole in the diaphragm or a lot. Um, so they could tell that uh, quite a bit of diaphragm must have been missing to allow so many organs um, to herniate into the chest cavity. So explain that. I don't know if I, when yes. I was giving the description, explain then, did I describe what a diaphragmatic you hernia did. was? Oh, you did perfectly. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, yeah. but as you're, as you're saying, um, the degree of lack of diaphragm is, you know, is, it is the spectrum. And right. so our son had a hole, your son had zero membrane. Is That's that what his surgeon said. Yeah. He said when he got in there, he referred to it as agenesis, the diaphragm. He said maybe on like the left side, a little lip of muscle, but nothing that would keep, you know, separate the heart and lungs from the stomach intestine, et cetera, uh, down in the, you know, abdominal cavity. So, um, so he because had intestines liver 
and, and yes. other organs laying in his chest cavity. Yes, pretty much Were everything. Were developed like, at all? They could Did see a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of one lung. I think it was his right lung. They could see a little bit of a no left lung, as I recall. So okay. pretty much from the get-go realized, okay, this is um, pretty, pretty severe. And because, you know, it was 20, I guess I was 20, 2015 when I was pregnant with him, things had developed and changed so much. There was this fetal surgery that was available. Um, okay. And it, we were, we Max's hospitals, Children's Hospital, Colorado, such a wonderful place that from the time he was born until now still um, are seen there for care. They hap just happened to be starting a study, kind of doing this fetal surgery. It was like popularized in Europe, but some places in the U.S. Um, were starting it and, you know, said his chances of survival weren't great without it. And of course, doing the surgery, there were some risks, but if it went well, his chances would be higher. Um, I remember how much we relied on our Mormon faith at the time, you know, to pray mm -hmm. and try and make a decision about that, decided to do the fetal surgery. So um, Max had this fetal surgery done, kind of complicated, but um, they like placed a balloon in his trachea. The whole point of it was that it kind of forced his lungs to grow. So his, and it did work. His lungs grew some, pushed some of those organs back down into his abdomen uh, you know, which hopefully then would put him in a better position once he was born. Wow. So now was this something that they did through the esophagus down th that way or how, no, where so did they, they? Yeah. So they went in through my belly. It wasn't oh, um, like, okay. a, yeah, it wasn't like a huge, some fetal surgeries are like, you know, a big open scar. It was like a fetoscopic is what they call it. So almost like oh, thoroscopic. Okay. Yeah. Just like three little tiny incisions went in there and then they did go through his tiny little fetal mouth right, to put the right. blood still shocking to me that this is all possible, you know. And did they like have this little tiny 20 week old baby outside of your uterus? While no, so he, this? that's, what's pretty incredible. When they first started doing the surgery, that's how they would do it. Now, mm -hmm. no, he was totally inside. Uh, they had to like pierce through the, you know, amniotic sac or whatever, but I guess it kind of reheals or whatever. So he yeah. really very much low risk, lower risk compared to how it used to be done. So, yeah. and he was, I think he was, 26 or 28 weeks pregnant. So we waited. Okay. A, there's kind of this optimal window for when they want to yeah. do it. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I was reading that this, this uh, defect usually happens around between eight and, and 12 weeks yes, of, of development. Mm -hmm. And, but I think it's also fascinating that they don't know why. Yeah. Uh, and they haven't really linked it genetically, but they're not, they're not ruling that out that there's some yes. kind of a genetic tie. Um, but it's funny because with our son being born in 1985, it was a few years later that I think there was an article in Life magazine and they were showing this new fetal surgery that they had wow. discovered. Yeah. Um, so even then I was like, wow, look how, you know, and even, even born in 1985, before 1985, the age that my, uh, my other child was at the time, they had nothing. I and can so believe it. Yeah. When these children were born, they were just like, they're going to die. Right. So right. even that much progress had been done, but you, you were able to take advantage of the medical. Yeah. I feel lucky that. that it was the time that it was that we happened to be in a location where it was being offered, you know, um, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the way things worked out um, in that regard for sure. Um, but yeah, so Max, so the fetal surgery did help some Max was born was still, still sick though, you know, like it wasn't as yeah. bad as it could have been, but still right. had a lot going on and ended up actually being diagnosed with another um, birth defect. It's called esophageal atresia, uh, kind of confusing, but it, 
it ended up, it's, I guess some they've seen it. They said sometimes with CDH, but pretty rare for those two to present together. Uh-huh. And similar to CDH, Noah, like they, no reason really why that would happen that they know of. Um, so interestingly, that ended up being a really complicating factor through Max's NICU stay, not just the CDH, uh-huh. but this kind of combined. So that's. Was there a, a, um, uh, this is worse than this one. Was it like he, if he would have only been born with this, we would be, uh, you know, doing well if he only had this, but it was the combo or which one was more severe? I think that in general, CDH tends to be, I think, more severe than the okay. other condition for the, and not to say that there's not kids that, you know, pass away from that condition. Or I know right. lots of families that had a long NICU stay, but I think in general, CDH, that statistic of, you know, half of kids you know, surviving or not, I think is worse than the esophageal mm-hmm. atresia with the tracheoesophageal fistula is like the full name. Um, wow. But for Max, I think it was the combo that really just was uh, like, yeah, yeah. How everything that had this. to do with respiratory yeah. and eating yes. and everything is all affected. Just, yeah. 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 So. So you had a, a, your little girl, how old was your little girl when, when Max yeah, so was born? My son actually was the oldest one. My, I have a, oh, yeah, it's okay. He was t- almost two and a half when Max okay, was born. So, so my oldest. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And no problems, uh, regular birth, totally uh, fabulous pregnancy, the whole yes. bit. Yep. No and, issues at all. Okay. And so, and you'd mentioned that you were very faith. You and your husband were both very faithful. Um, very, LDS. Yeah. So there was prayer. Were there blessings? Yes. Lots of prayer. Yeah. Lots of prayer, lots of blessings name in so many different temples. We were doing, you know, all of the things we could think of to do to, and really had the faith too, that that was Mm going to work. Um, I even, I think I had been reading the book of Mormon or something at the time as my personal scripture study, but switched over to like the new Testament because I wanted to focus on like all of the miracles of Jesus healing people. That was something I was like, I'm going to focus on this you know, really intentional prayers that I would say with, you know, thinking about each like developing part of his body, just all of the Mormon things that, you know, is a, a true believing member that you would be doing to, right. you know, to hope that this, this outcome changes or goes the way you want it to. So. And, and how did your pregnancy, uh, you get the ultrasound, you get the diagnosis. They're going to say, look, we're going to wait about six weeks before we do the surgery. So you go home, you live your life. Tell me if yes. I'm, if I'm following this, uh, schedule here yep. and you live your life and uh, then you're 26 weeks along. So now it's time for surgery. Um, if I remember correctly from your Mormon stories, your husband's family lives, lived around you or. My, so his, fa- my family's in the same town. His family okay. is like three hours away. So pretty, okay. pretty close. All, yeah. All okay. together. But, yeah. Okay. So you had family support. I did. Yep. My family and, was there. Yep. Okay. And they took care of your little boy while you were in surgery. And then after the 26 week surgery, were you on bed rest healing or were there any restrictions? Yes. Yeah. So I did have to, um, at first when they did the surgery, I was able to, I had to be within like a certain distance of the hospital. So we were staying at the Ronald McDonald house in Denver. So I couldn't go all the way back to Laramie, but I wasn't on total bed rest. It was kind of like, I'm trying to remember the way they described the precautions, but you know, obviously not supposed to lift anything, be careful bending over. Um, I could, you know, like walk around and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. See that. And I, and I'm glad you brought that up because you were not in your hometown. You had to go to Denver, which required you to stay at the Ronald McDonald house. Yes. So, and your husband was probably working or or did he he was in school? Yeah. So we were, he was still student. So he was finished. It was, this would have been in like November. So the semester was finishing up soon. So my mom was down there with me while Keith was finishing up 
that semester. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you're everyone in your home ward in Laramie, they're all aware of what's going on. And um, they're probably offering support as far as prayers go and things like that. And then um, Denver probably wasn't like, well, we're here, but our home is in Laramie. And yeah, at some point, okay. I think this would have been like months into his NICU stay. I think our bishop in Laramie sent our records to Denver, oh. realizing, I think that we were, I don't know if he, I think that he and the bishop in Denver must like communicated or something. I don't even remember the details of that. Yeah, At some point our right, records right. got kind of transferred though, but it wasn't, it was a while before that happened. So yeah, at first, yeah, um, yeah. like, yeah, like you said, lots of prayers, um, people letting us know they were thinking of us, um, kind of et cetera. While I was pregnant with right. Max between right. that and the, the fetal surgery, like they do it in two steps. They put in the balloon and then before the baby's born, they have to remove it. So we knew there was, before Max was born, there was going to have to be another fetal surgery. Um, yeah. And I remember hearing from friends and family. It seemed like during that time, we felt pretty well supported. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so he, it, how was he delivered then? Was he a cesarean? No, he, it actually was a vaginal birth. Um, so they, yeah, that it's interesting. So I think they used to always do C-sections for CDH right. babies. And it sounds like from doctors I've talked to, some still prefer to do that. But the surgeon we were seeing said that if it's if it's safe, um, a the pressure, I guess, of a vaginal delivery can help expel some fluid from the baby's lungs and oh. just a little bit better for their lungs if it's safe. Yes. So I was totally ready to have a C-section if that's what was right. But, you know, I right. was happy to do it vaginally if that would work, too. So I one morning I woke up, I could tell I was in labor. And it, it, at one point I did have to be so I was kind of at the Ronald McDonald house. I started like leaking amniotic fluid at one point. So then I did have to be on bed rest. So there was a chunk of time where I was at the hospital and just had to be like in my hospital room kind of waiting. Okay, So you went yeah. from, uh, so you had to stay in Denver. There was not like, okay, we've done the surgery, go home and recover. We'll see you yeah. back in 20 weeks. No, we had to stay in Denver. Yeah. So from the time of the first fetal surgery happened, I don't, I can't remember now if it was 26 or 28 weeks, we had to stay and we had to be within, yeah, I can't remember, it's like 30 minutes or something. So we were just at the Ronald McDonald house oh. there. Yeah. Well, then, like you say, so then he's born. They know what they're they're working with. Yes. So did they do surgery immediately then after he was born? It was like, I think it was day three or it was day four that they did the okay. surgery. So kind of let him stabilize a little bit, but wanted to not wait very long, you know, to do it. Um, okay. And then, yeah, went in and did the surgery to correct the the hernia. So how long totally were you having to live in Denver with your mom and your son and your husband, probably like finishing school, going through all this stuff? Um, how long total between yeah. when he was born, NICU? It, it was just a little bit over a year that we were there. Yeah. So a, a chunk of it being before the pregnancy and then long NICU stay. And then the last bit of the hospital stay for Max was moved from the NICU to like a kind of a step down unit to get ready to go home. Um, but all it was like, like mid November to like almost December, I think. Okay. So just a little bit over a year altogether. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so what, who, who's at your house? How, where all your clothes, all your stuff, all your baby clothes. Right. So did... yeah. Um, so like baby clothes, I didn't even really have a baby shower for with Max partially because right. it was my second in a boy, like we already had, you know, lots from Sam, but also it's um, like, and I've talked to other moms who've received a diagnosis when they were pregnant. That was 
you know, unknown, like what the outcome is going to be. Um, it was kind of hard to know how, like you want to celebrate the pregnancy, but there's all it's mingled with this kind of sadness and not grief, yeah. maybe grief over the experience you expected, you know? Right. So I, I had kind of a little mini shower with my mom and two sisters in Denver. Um, but okay. not, you know, like a, so I didn't have a lot of, ba- I had some of Sam things, some of Sam's things, some things, I think, you know, some family had sent clothes, but Max had so many different tubes and wires that it wasn't until he was like, probably like four months old that he could like wear yeah. a onesie that, you know, that worked. Right. So, yeah. And what, and what's Sam going through right now? He's like, I want to be at my house. I want to play with my toys. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sick of this little room we're staying in. How did, how was that handled? It's interesting. Yeah. So, um, the, the Ronald McDonald house is lovely in that there were so many other families there with kids, uh, siblings that were at the hospital, but then a sibling that was there at the house. Um, so Sam actually made a lot of friends there. And it, I, it's valuable to me looking back because they were friends that could, you know, understand and empathize with uh, why. And he was so little, he was only two and a half. But, yeah. you know, I think you know, at the time didn't uh, totally understand. Yeah, of course, It was just a big party. Yeah. Yes. But that's, to, that's the thing about children yeah. is adults are going through. I remember my dad was, uh, my stepfather was in from uh, England. And so he lived through world war two, but he was a child. And sure. so he says, I have, I have memories of playing on rubble, you know, of, of uh, bombed out places. Right. And he just thought it was the best of fun. And sure. so children are so resilient as long as they're being loved and, and they're, you know, they're well cared for. They're just like, this is so great. Absolutely. And I think that's his mem. Sometimes we all in certain ways, strangely enough, miss the Ronald McDonald house sometimes because it was oh. home for so long and the staff there, we got to know so well, so many families and Sam has never, you know, what he remembers from that time yeah. said yeah. to me, anything other than, you know, little memories of, oh, that was fun. I never a negative memory. So I feel great. So grateful that Ronald McDonald houses exist because I think that was a saving grace to have this place where there was people that understood my husband and I, you know, they had a big playroom, things for Sam to do. It really made such a difficult time doable, honestly. What what a lovely, I have never visited a Ronald McDonald house, but it really makes me want to get more involved in fundraising for them because what a wonderful thing for families. That's totally, that's That's been, and even things like almost every night a volunteer group would come in and make dinner. So, you know, we're like, you know, you know, the, when you're going through a tough time, the last thing on your mind being, what am I going to make for dinner? So to have something like that taken care of, um, and to just feel so much love from these strangers, you know, that are there, um, doing something so kind for you and you know, they don't know you. It just, it, it was a, so strange to say that because it's the hardest time of my life in so many ways, but also I, I can, rem- there's these little pieces that were really like beautiful from it. So, well, and that's kind of a, not to be a negative Nelly and to, you know, do a trash on. Um, but as you said, your Bishop from Laramie sent your records to Denver. So now you're in a Denver ward, but these people don't really know you. Yeah. So how did they contribute to your time? when you were at the Ronald McDonald house, comparatively. Not not a lot, to be honest. So like I said, I I think maybe it was four or five months in when the records got transferred. And I'm gonna have to ask my husband, I can't remember if, who initiated that? You know, if it was the Denver bishop said, hey, if they're here, send them our way. Or if it was our bishop, I don't know. But um, I remember being surprised that for a ward whose boundaries had the Ronald McDonald house and children's hospital, you know, that was included in their ward boundary. Um, oh, yeah. how 
like not kind of maybe not aware of that maybe they seemed to be um because mm -hmm. i don't everyone was nice enough but i not maybe the support we felt like we needed at the time you know to really be like embraced by a community i think is what we right. were hoping and looking for and didn't right. really feel from the ward in denver at the same time i think the distance with the ward in laramie maybe people didn't know what to do it's yeah, a lot yeah. you know and as i look back my feelings have evolved over the years you know as i kind of have grieved and gone through that process of deconstructing and still am very much you know deconstructing yeah. mormonism right. Um, but I do definitely remember feeling surprised that the Denver Ward wasn't more prepared to like care for people that they knew were going to be in their boundaries at the Ronald McDonald right. House. And also mourning, I think, a lot that in Laramie, because to me, um, regardless of whether or not I was in their ward boundaries or my records had been moved, these are friends of mine and people that, you know, I am a convert, but started going to church when I was 15. So, you know, for a long time now, I've known lots of these people to kind of feel like, oh, well, our records aren't in the ward anymore. So maybe it's, yeah. it's not our issue anymore. That kind of was hard because to me, you know, ward boundaries di didn't dictate, you know, friendship right. I cared for sort of thing. So, yeah. Right. right. And as you mentioned, the Ronald McDonald House themselves had volunteers that came in and fixed dinner for you. Yes. They don't know you. They're not uh, members of your congregation. Yes. They're not your neighbors. These are just, uh, you know, people that have vo are volunteering out of love and support. So right. there is a little bit of, because I remember where we used to live, there was a woman's prison and there were, that was a calling for a couple wow. in our ward who went to the women's prison and conducted sacrament meeting and Sunday school and things like that. Yeah. So you, you would think that there would be like, well, hey, we have the Ronald McDonald house. Uh, these people are living there. Are they able to go to church? Does someone need to go there and give them the sacrament? Absolutely. Do we need to do, uh, do you have visiting teachers? You need to, if there's a family that's living there that's in our ward. You need to go over and find out if there's anything we can do. Hey, maybe we could volunteer one night a week. And 100%. Someone that's their calling is the Ronald McDonald House to go over and make sure that we're taking in these people. But that that does surprise me that especially like you were saying, this is 2015. Yeah, 2000. It would have been 2016, probably okay. after Max was born. New Year's Day, 2016. So okay. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I'm with you. That was kind of my expectation was with this kind of unique situation that they would even maybe have, you know someone who's right, calling right. was dedicated to just kind of keeping tabs on the LDS families at the Ronald McDonald house. Um, right. So I was, I was just kind of surprised that that wasn't, um, yeah. wasn't in place, but. Well, and even if you went back to the idea um, of uh, sometimes I think that service is always based on missionary work. Yes. So even yeah. though you are already active members of the church, um, their presence could have been a good missionary opportunity yeah. uh, just to have that house in their realm of service projects absolutely um, uh, to serve other people what a, that's that is that really does surprise me and it makes me kind of because there's uh here in phoenix there's the randall's children's hospital wait was that portland the phoenix children's hospital uh i'm curious if there's a ronald mcdonald house in phoenix i wonder I'm going to find out so yeah like i know that's amazing yeah, like a nephew of mine was in the NICU. I know there's a Ronald McDonald House in Salt Lake because he was in the NICU there. But um, yeah, I don't know about Phoenix. But um, it's, it's funny you mentioned the missionary thing because I feel like the only members that I remember seeing at the Ronald McDonald House were missionaries. Every now and then there would be missionaries there, um, which looking back is unsettling a little bit to me that yeah. families yeah. in very you know difficult, vulnerable positions um, you know, are the, the targets kind of of this missionary work. 
Yeah, exactly. They're, they're actually, it's, it's like a business plan yes. that you look yeah. for families that are vulnerable. They're going through some kind of grief process and that's when they're most susceptible to accept right. this new idea. And that's so sad, but there you totally. go. So, right. Yeah. So I meant, I, I remember from your Mormon stories that you mentioned that you, like you said, you were putting Max's name in the temple I'm sure your relatives were probably attending the temple and taking yes. his name. Yep. And didn't you say that you had like every temple in Colorado? Yeah, I had this like, big, <laughs> it was, I, tr I tried to put his name in every temple in the United States, which I didn't get, I oh. didn't reach that, but I had this big list of all the temples. I, I wish I still had it. Maybe I do somewhere. There was a ton. There was quite a few though, that I had his name in and I had made these notes next to it of some of them, like the name expires or whatever after four weeks. Some of it was two weeks when you would need to call again. So I kind of had this system of, I would call and renew it. Eventually I stopped doing that because I think something in me knew that it wasn't helping, you know, or that, and also with all that I was doing, it was one load on my plate that maybe I was, you know, like, okay, this can't keep going. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I just had perfect faith that, you know, we had been living our lives the way we were supposed to, we were continuing to do that. Like this should, you know, we should have the, um, the miracles that are promised to members that are living that way. Right. 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 Yeah. And a as you and your husband are going through this, what would you, would, do you think that this was the beginning of your deconstruction that you started to question the other promises that you had, that had been made? Because I'm sure that I think we all, as, as active members, we all look at it. Like I remember with my son, I looked at it as though, um, well, he wasn't completely healed, um, right. but he survived and he didn't yes. have this and he didn't have that. And look how he's blessed our life. And, and um, you know, that, so you start to kind of juggle the, well, he wasn't completely healed, but he's still alive and he's not dangerous and we don't have to worry about him hurting other people. You start to rationalize through all yes. of this. Right. And Make I, it fit into that, that narrative of this is a blessing somehow, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think you also come to terms eventually, tell me if you guys did this where it, it isn't a faith thing. It's like a science. It's a nature. It's like, look, we all have something we're going, going through. Yes. Everyone has something in their life. Um, we're not special. Uh, we, we don't believe that he was given to us because we're such great parents. We don't believe that he was given this body because he was so righteous in the preexistence that he didn't need to be tried. Yes. We didn't believe any of that. We just kind of settled with, this is how nature works yes. and we're okay with this. Right. But no, it didn't so matter. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So, um, this, it probably took a little bit into the NICU stay, but this absolutely was the beginnings for me anyway of like my testimony starting to break down. And the beginning, it took a long time. You know, it wasn't until Max was, gosh, 2020, like, you know, four, almost five that I ended up being done with the church. So it was a long, a drawn out process, but this for sure was the beginnings of that for me. Um, and you're right. It was, I think, people trying to frame it in a way other than what you just described. Keith and I, right, coming to peace with, you know, Max wasn't intentionally given this body because he was good. Or I think I shared this, the quote on Mormon stories, um, the Harold B. Lee awful quote that he yes. taught that it's because individuals with disabilities were unrighteous and made bad mm -hmm. choices in the preexistence that that's the body. You know, we rejected that totally. Um, but I think like 
members that we knew kind of trying to push different things, different narratives um, was really rough, you know, to hear those different, but I'm with you. That's kind of, I think what we saw that was, you know, we saw these families around us that were in a similar situation and just that, right. That's, you know, life is what it is. Right. Like you said, everyone has something for us. This is what we're dealing with. And yeah, yeah you know, not yeah, having yeah. to put this meaning, this religious meaning on everything. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and actually I I've read a lot of books um, from, you know, a religious people that do not believe that everything happens for a reason or that this is God's hand is in this, but that God's hand is in things from the standpoint that he created the world. He also created gravity, natural law. And so if you stand too close to the edge of a cliff, you're going to fall off and you might die sure. because he invented gravity. And then he, and, and, and this is how a lot of people, and I love this. I don't know. I, I kind of agree with it, but um, it depends on where you're at as far as a higher power goes. But then he says, I, what I will do is I have these natural laws, but then I will put people and people will serve other people and people will come to the rescue of people that need help or are having trials and things like that. I don't like think that. I've ever heard a perspective like that shared. That's really, in yeah, that's interesting yeah. way to think about it. I, yeah. I liked that one where yeah. it wasn't, you know, like he said, this book that I read um, was a, a Jewish rabbi and he said I would go in, he had lost a son. And he had, he would go in to visit uh, people that were in the hospital. Oh, I, I know that there's a God because I was in this horrible car crash, but look, I came out without hardly any scratches and things like that. Therefore there must be a God. And he said, I didn't have the heart to say to them, but the little boy down the street yes. was in a car accident and he was killed. So where's right. God's uh, chess game that's going on with Absolutely. that? Yeah. So that's where he kind of established this idea that, uh, God created the earth and with the earth came natural law and we are all, you know, susceptible to natural laws, but there are people who will be influenced to go and help you get through whatever it is you're going through. And that's I love a beautiful that. way to, I yeah. agree. I love that. That to me, I, and that was probably one of the hardest things for me to square during Max's NICU stay and the time since even was the number of friends of ours whose kids passed away. Uh, not, you know, not just even how Max was doing, like thinking, right you know, how there's that example that I feel like is used a lot. Someone in our ward praying to find their car keys and yeah. that's answered, you know, yeah. but I'm seeing these families around me experiencing such loss and difficulty and heartache. And my eyes were so open before and still have a very privileged life. But, you know, before I think being very, just not having experienced really a lot of hardship, um, yeah. it was just so eye-opening to realize, wait, how does this narrative of, you know, God really handpicking these experiences, this isn't making sense anymore, you right. know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So talk, walk us through then your experience with Max, be, maybe being the very beginning of you starting to question whether some of the things that you'd been told or brought up with in the church, well, you weren't, you were 15. Your husband yeah. was uh, a member of, of the church his whole life. Is that? Yes. Yeah. That yeah. He's one of eight kids, super active family. He's like a direct descendant of um, Heber C. Kimball. Oh, so he's oh, very, oh. you know, they go, they go right back. So yes, a very, um, you know, very okay. strong Mormon family on his side. And yeah, I was dating a guy who was Mormon and started going to church with him and we ended up breaking up, but the, I really had a test. Like I did all of the things and had a testimony and was like, just so super in it. Um, yeah. it's hard looking back now to, um, 
sometimes to understand how that happened, but I really was, tr you know, truly believing. Um, so my parents didn't want me to get baptized till I was 18. They wanted me to be a full adult before I made that decision. But I attend okay. from the time I was like 15 and a half or something. I attended like as if I was a member. So that's interesting. So how did your parents handle Max in the NICU compared to your husband's family? How were they? Yeah. Did they have a, a, another religion that they believed in? No, not really. My family um, is like kind of loosely Catholic, but not, you oh. know, like I was baptized Catholic when I was a baby, but not, um, I wouldn't say really practicing, you know, um, that I think though was maybe one of my first kind of shelf items with this was seeing kind of the, the platitudes and the hurtful things that came from the really Mormon people we knew versus the non-religious people I knew who, um, like just loved us and said they were sorry and held space for us and didn't feel the need to, you know, ascribe this meaning to everything. I think that was one of my first, oh, I can feel this cognitive dissonance of why are the, why are the people from the one true church, um, right. you know, everything they're saying is making me feel worse. And these people that maybe don't even believe in God, you know, I don't know exactly what each of my family members thinks, but I felt so much better supported by them. So interesting. Yeah. You know, I wonder if from a psychological point of view, I wonder if there is um, faith because I know people of most religions will talk about faith, which is the lack of knowledge, but belief. Right. So if you have a, a faith, say, let's say Catholicism, um, but you don't have the understanding that, you know, everything you have the answers to everything. And they're yes. asked, and, and this is why this is all happening because we were told by some prophet in the last hundred years that this is why, like you say, this, we were told by Harold B. Lee that he came here because he was uh, wicked in the preexistence. And therefore you can have a body, but pff, too bad, sad, you know, you're going to get this sure. icky body. Um, so there's that prophet. And then there's another prophet that goes, eh, I don't like that. That's not really socially acceptable. So let's go with, they were so righteous in the preexistence that they don't even have to be tested. So now they're going to come down to this horrible pain ridden body. Uh, we're like, mm, I don't know if I can go with that one too. So then you get the next prophet that says, um, well, but look at the spirituality that's caused by this. We don't have all the answers, but look how spiritual they are. Or look how, you know, look what this brings in. And you're like, would you stop? Just stop. Absolutely. We're so sorry that this happened. What can we do to help? So there 100%. is a, a surety that actually brings more sorrow than the people who say, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm sorry. So sorry this happened to you. That was 100% my experience was this, uh, like you described, there's this plan of happiness, emphasis on the happiness. That was something I struggled with was kind of toxic positivity. We have to turn this into, you know, a faithful experience somehow. Um, mm -hmm. But you're right. No, no room for nuance, for a gray area, for questions, for unknowing. You're absolutely right. Ended up being more more harmful trying to fit this thing that doesn't have an answer and isn't all black and white and isn't all good and bad into this this world of absolutes it's just not there's not a, right. there's not it doesn't work so i think that i yeah started to figure that out that that cognitive dissonance that just something about this doesn't you know what i'm experiencing and what people are how people are trying to frame my experience for me you know it, it's not feeling good it's not making me feel no. better yeah. And the, the problem with absolutes is, and I've heard this said before, that the church paints itself into a corner on so many different oh, levels because they absolutely. have these absolutes. And I, I'm kind of going through one of those right now is where 
and I will admit in a heartbeat that my white privilege allowed me to accept the doctrine of the gospel so easily Same. because it yep. fits so well in my Midwestern uh, white upbringing. Um, and so when things began to not fit in quite so well, and the answer, when you get down, when you keep asking questions and it's like, but what about this? But what about this? But what about mm -hmm. this? And invariably at the very end, the answer is, we don't know. We yeah. don't have all the answers, but Absolutely. up until you cornered us, we had all the answers, but now we don't. So the answer is, you know, we'll find out in the next life. I'm like, well, that's not really helping out five steps right back. Now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So walk no, us through, walk us through, uh, you, you know, you have another baby, you have your daughter now, uh, yep. life, you're, you're back in Laramie, uh, you're trying to still be active. You're going to church. Walk us through how things just began to crumble for you yes. and your husband. Yeah. So it's, um, like your time timing of mentioning white privilege is apt because I think that having, like I said, I was very shielded from difficulties and from, you know, yeah, I guess difficulties. So going through this with Max, I think softened my heart and opened my eyes to, you know, okay, the church maybe feels like it's not working for me in these ways and started to think about, you know, LGBTQ plus people that I knew and had more empathy for the way that the ways the church is, doesn't work for them. Right. So I think that something about that made me not see from such a, you know, blinders on perspective. I was able to mm -hmm. just notice more flaws in the church, to be honest, ways that, you know, with everyone and all the variety of situations and life experiences, you know, to kind of fit everything into this box and have people, you know, live in this certain way. Um, I think I was just starting to recognize maybe that it wasn't, it just doesn't work that way. But um, yeah, so my third, my third kiddo was born after Max. And I think probably one of the biggest things that contributed to eventually leaving the church was just, I mean, it's difficult raising any kid, right? Like being a mom of young kids is just a lot um, right. for, for anyone. Um, right. But with all that Max so even after coming home from the NICU, it's not like that's where things ended. Um, Max required a ventilator to support his breathing. Still, he's right now starting to have some time off the vent, but still mostly uses the ventilator. Um, you know, had a feed, feeding tube. He was dependent on IV nutrition, all these different things. So on top of, you know, two typical kids, um, I just felt like there was so much on my plate. And Mormonism, I was just listening actually this morning to that episode. I think it was Liz and Trish a recent episode you did with them, Mormonism asks so much of us, right? Mm -hmm. that, you know, not just Sunday attendance, it's, you know, the daily scripture study, the couple's scripture study, family scripture study, family home evening. I felt like I was drowning, I think, just in trying to, you know, raise my kids and keep Max healthy, um, recognizing that not only were these things, when I was, did have the time to do them, were they not helping, right? Like mm -hmm. prayers, blessings, weren't necessarily helping the situation. Um, but it felt like it just was so much to keep up with was I think mm -hmm. one piece of it, you know, recognizing mm -hmm. how full my plate was. And, um, but I think a lot of it was also, like I said, you know, these things that I'd been promised, the things that made me as a convert. So, you know, interested in the church and really, so, you know, again, thinking that if we were living the way we should, that 
these blessings should be ours that we I didn't feel like we were seeing. But then even a, a chunk of that for me was the community. The way that we felt kind of not supported by our ward never bothered my husband quite as much as it did me. And I think that was part of partially being a convert that, mm-hmm. you know, for him growing up in a Mormon family, like, you know, you're a fish and Mormonism is the water. Like you don't know anything different regardless of the mm-hmm. way, you know, your ward is. Um, that was just like such a huge part of his life. Whereas for me, you know, um, there were some things going on with my sister when I was a teenager that were rough that I definitely influenced, I think, my like susceptibility to, um, you know, wanting to learn about the church and feeling really welcomed, kind of love bombing maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of have that community piece missing for me and feeling like we weren't supported was really hard for me and made me what kind of what I said earlier. Why are these people that aren't members of the One True Church and don't have lessons every week on charity, you know, and don't, why why do I feel more supported by them than by, um, by people that, you know, in theory should be doing a really, really good job of making me feel uplifted and held and heard and seen, you know, even if, because there's so much of, you know, like Max's care that someone, it's not like there's certain, there's not always something someone can do for us. Exactly. Oftentimes it's just the, the words, the support, knowing someone's there and is aware of you um, that right. I felt. And I, to be clear too, there were people that were g- good about that. It just overall felt like, you know, we kind right. of, I was well, missing that. And I think because of, as you say, suddenly you're, you've got three children now, you have to be at church at 9am, let's say. Um, did you have a calling at, during any of this? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, gosh, did I have, now I'm trying to remember. I did. Yeah. There was a time when Max was a uh, home that I did have a calling at some point though. I did ask to be released, which I remember, mm-hmm. um, horrified some family members that, that I would think to even do that, you know, like you don't yeah, ask yeah. to be released from a calling. I, at the time had no qualms doing it. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I think that I, there was at least one calling maybe. Now, right. I'm, now I'm trying to remember if it was before he was born. I think that it was after though. Anyway. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so you've got, um, you've got a child now that you are bringing to church along with the others. So you're packing up the coloring books and the popcorn and the goldfish and the respirator and the trach issue things yeah. that have to go with that. And, uh, and a wheelchair, right? Because he's yep. in a wheelchair because you've got to bring the respirator along with him. Yep. And, yeah. then you're, and, and I just have this vision because this is what, what I, I have this vision of like, you know, the elbows on the, the, on the door, you're trying to keep the door open with one elbow and push the wheelchair in with your other yes. hand. And then you're calling out to your, to Sam, Sam, come back, come back, come on, help, help mommy, help oh. mommy. You know, just getting in the freaking building is an ordeal. Absolutely. It, you know, that, it's, the way you're describing is exactly what it was. And again, bringing any young kids to church, I know I know any mom can relate to what it's like to have little kids in this meeting where expected to be quiet. It felt like tenfold, hundredfold extra with all of Max's equipment and things. And it's funny. So, um, you know, we talked yesterday about the doors not having push buttons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they did when Max you know, came home from the NICU, they didn't have that. I actually yesterday drove by our old building and it does have one now no. and not, I don't want to take credit for it, but after my, my Relief Society president lists at the time anyway, I don't know if she still is, listened to my Mormon stories episode and text me. She's lovely. She texted me and said, what is like, what would be the number one thing we could do to make the church like more accessible and more inclusive of people with disabilities? And I said, right. the starter is people even be able to access the building. Like if you could add a push button, 
we never talked about it again, but today when I, or yesterday when I drove by, I saw it and I was like, it was great yeah. to see, you know, that now at least someone can push that and access the building. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, right. Yeah. So that being the first step, not even physically able to get into the building, much less than how to manage, you know, yeah. all that I was dealing with, with the expectation, the, so, you know, the strict expectations of the spirit that should be maintained in this ward building, and especially in sacrament meeting. Um, you know, we, I don't think we ever sat in a pew with Max. We were always either in the foyer or um, they would set up these like folding chairs kind of in the overflow in the back where we would sit. So we were right mm-hmm. next to the door in case he needed a section or the his pulse socks went off or the ventilator beeped because we were so worried about um, it, something making a noise and just everyone turning and looking and disturbing the spirit. Um, and there, there were times that, you know, something did beep or whatever and people would look at, you know, it wasn't, Sure. It's a natural reaction. Totally right. I would never, you know, fault anyone for looking, but it, I, looking back, I so wish that it had been Harmon's we're so glad you're here with Max, you know, come sit down. And if people heard a noise again, looking, as you said, is a total natural reaction, but that it didn't bother anyone. It was like, Oh, oh, they're just gonna, they're taking care of Max. It's fine. Um, You know, it it makes me so sad to look back that we felt like we had to kind of walk on eggshells and didn't feel you know, com- as comfortable as we maybe should have in the right. place that I really considered a second family, you know, for so exactly. long. And so. that's one of the things that we, uh, and again, things that you start going, well, at least I, well, I, you know, I don't have to, whatever. But one of the things that we have experienced was he was um, very, accept- it was very accepted in all of the wards that we've lived in yeah. because he would, um, he, and people at his, when we did his celebration of life, Uh, People said, well, we loved it when TJ sang or we loved it when TJ, when the bishop would get up and say, we'd like to sustain so-and-so all in favor, say I, any opposed. And he would go, yeah, you know, and people would laugh and they love that. And the only negative experience we had was when we moved to Arizona. And it was funny because my husband has always been in positions of uh, leadership. And so he was gone. I mean, when I hear someone say, Oh, wow. he's a single mother, I'm like, shut up. But I mean, so I'm dragging six kids to church by myself. I can't imagine. Was, yeah. I just yeah. had the three even, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there was one time right after he was born that, um, we were actually renting a house. And the, so the ward was very cold because there were a lot of, it was in Northeast Portland. It was a, a ward that struggled because it was an inner city ward. Mm. They had their own issues going on. And there were a lot of people that would come and go. Yeah. Um, and so when you would say to them, oh, well, we're just renting temporarily, they'd go, yeah, you're not going to be here a while. And so there's like, we're not, not take the time yeah, yeah, right. to get invested. <laughs> right. So, but my husband was in the high council. So he was off visiting some other ward and I'm at church with these six little kids and I'm out in the hallway with, uh, you know, with TJ. And this guy, and I don't know where the other five were. I cannot remember where the other five were, probably running around inside the chapel. Sure. But um, this guy comes out of the chapel and he looks at me. Here's this baby hooked on to oxygen tanks and whatnot. And he goes, oh, come on. Can't be that bad. Just smile. And I was, I remember just thinking. Oh, Renee. Wow. I'm so sorry. I can't. And it's, it's always these crazy old men. So then when we moved to Arizona, my husband is, for the first time in his life, not in a leadership position. Yay, so he's actually yeah. sitting with me, right? Well, he's not used to this. So TJ starts singing and he's like, oh, sh- 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 sh. and I'm like, he's fine. He's fine. He's like, no, no, no. I don't want to disturb anybody. So he would get up and take him out in the hallway. And I, I would get so mad because I would say, no, 
That's not okay. Everybody in this ward loves him. They've, they've said how much they love listening to him. This is your issue, dude. So anyway, yeah. one time he had taken him to church and I wasn't there. And he came home and he goes, you're not going to believe what happened. He said, I took TJ out in the hallway, and but I was standing kind of near the door so I could hear. And this old guy got up and and very, you know, one of these snowbirds that was all, you know, prim and proper. And he came out and he was like, could you please move farther away from the door? Your son is disturbing the meeting. <gasps> oh, my God. And so my, my husband, of course, just said, no problem. I'm going to leave. Started heading out the, the door and a beautiful, I love him, a beautiful man ran after him and said, don't leave, don't leave, please don't leave. I heard oh. what happened. That's not how we feel. Please come back in. And then later the bishop called me in and said, I just want to apologize. That wow. is not how we think. You know, that, yeah. But uh, so there are, there are, there's always, that's not a church thing. That's not a Mormon thing. That's just a people thing. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is, let's say the, the more equipment that you have, the more beeping and gurgling and sucking sounds right. and all this stuff, of course, you're going to be conscious. And so what you have now joined is the tribe in the foyer. This right. is now your, like, I just spent two and a half hours getting kids dressed, diaper bags packed and rushed to be there on time. And I'm sitting in the foyer yeah. for the rest of my life. Yep. So, well, yeah. I love the way what you said about your husband once he was not in a leadership position and able to sit with you. Cause looking back, I think, I think that it was us being self-conscious and just so aware of this expectation and this norm that, you know, it's quiet in the chapel, et cetera. I very much wish that we had maybe leaned into it more and, you know, maybe all of the fears I was having of people are going to think bad of us or something wouldn't have been true. And we would have been embraced in that way that, you know, your ward loved hearing TJ. That's a regret oh, I have yeah. of assuming that people would, you know, like that man did, you know, yeah. say, can you take him out? Um, but, you know, again, that some of that's on Keith and I for sure. But I think also some of it is on how often are, you know, is it hammered in that this is, you know, like such an important meeting where we're partaking yeah, of the reverence, sacrament. Yeah. Reverence, yeah. You know, some of it was that cultural, just, you know, norm that existed that you you feel scared to violate because there can exactly. be social, you know, there can be social consequences for violating any, you know, any of the norms that exist kind of in that chapel. Exactly. So I, I wish and that I, we had leaned into that. Yeah. Exactly. And I think too that there is, you can see a progression of um, bottom line, it's a money issue. And that's why what I think makes it so sad is we have these cookie cutter buildings that okay. are built to specs that have been set up to be the most efficient that they can be. Therefore, like when my, I had an aunt that was a member of the church way before my mother uh, ever decided to join. And we went to church with her a few times. And this was back in um, Illinois. And they had a beautiful building with a cry room. And wow. so they had the windows, just like in the tabernacle, where, where mothers could take their babies, uh -huh. be there, but also not be worried about disturbing other people. Sure. And, and when we went to, when we were in Portland for my son's celebration of life, we went to a, uh, I think it's a pretty much a non-denominational Christian church. And they had their, the very beginning was a welcome everyone, songs, music, blah, blah, blah. And then the children were all released. The children went down to their classes or whatever. And then there was the sermon that was given. So the children, you know, so the, the adults, and I think, you know, it's, it's fine if you think that these little kids, you know, need to learn how to do this at three years old. But the reality is 
they're screaming, they're yelling, they're disturbing the reverence. And wouldn't it be nice if we just built our buildings where there were cry rooms Absolutely. or maybe a, a nursery that was actually dedicated to children so that when we dropped them off in the nursery, they didn't start screaming and crying because there's, you know, a little tiny kitchen over here, a little tiny toilet over here and, and actu an actual that, it, no, no, this room is the nursery. We don't have to designate it for 7,000 other activities, right. you know, or a nursing room for mothers. It's like, we encourage you to have 7,000 babies, but if you need to feed them, go sit in your Out car. Out of here. Yeah. 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 I was yeah. always shocked even, um, you know, that in relief society, a room yeah. full of other women, you're, you, it was, and I, my oldest son, I would nurse um, in relief society, but that it took a long time before I was kind of comfortable with that. And even then I know that I was, I'm sure thought of as well, that lady, yeah. you know, yeah, a room full of women. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, you're right. Like, you know, to developmentally expect that kids of all, you know, from newborns on up to be quiet for that hour chunk of time, looking back seems so unrealistic that that was, you yeah. know, um, yeah. kind of the hard expectation. I'm, I'm with you that if in a church that encourages families and, in, you know, loves and, children. And that's such a part of Mormon life um, to really have it set up in a way that isn't super conducive on a Sunday, exactly. you know, to having a family there. The, the buildings aren't really, like you say, they're not conducive no, to families at all. Not at all. In fact, like you were saying, um, the, I went around and took pictures of uh, the buildings that we used to go to when we lived in Washington and Oregon. There wasn't one building that had the push button to open the doors. And I thought, well, maybe I should be fair. And there was a, a church across the street from this one building. So I went over there and I drove around. They also did not have a, a building, you know, push button. But then I thought, yeah, but this apartment building over here, they have a push building and the mall has right. a push button. And so is it a money thing? It can't be a security thing. It's got to be a money thing. Yeah. So I, I Googled this and apparently churches are not, um, accountable for the Americans with Disabilities Act. They don't have to comply oh. by, so they don't have to make their buildings accessible, um, which is shocking to me. You know, I could talk for a long time about the Mormon church and its tax exempt status and, you know, the Enzyme Peak um, slush fund or whatever, like there's so much you could say about this, but to me, if exactly. churches are, have, are, if churches have this tax exempt status, I wish RFM here was here to ask a question, but I think that it's because, um, to my knowledge, it's because the, you know, they don't have to pay taxes because there's with like the different charity work they do and supporting the community, like, because they're kind of taking on a function that I think the state would take on otherwise. That's my understanding of why churches don't have to pay taxes because they're okay. helping the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how with that in mind, they sh shouldn't have to be accessible because if they're not accessible, community members with disabilities can't get that help. Uh, you know, it, it's really strange to me. And you're right. Is it a money thing? I could, you know, for a little tiny community church, I get that. To me, it's inexcusable that in 2023, not all Mormon church buildings have push buttons on them because we know that exactly. this church can afford it, you know? Right. So. Well, and not only that, but I had a, I had a warrior woman in our ward before we moved that the, if, if you, most chapels, if you go into, they have the center pews and then they have right. a, a row on each side of pews. It's some of the larger ones. And so on the, on the rows on each side at the very end, there were two short rows yes. and people, 
Hey, I would have thought the same thing. Most people think, oh, that's great. Those are for the nice older couples that don't have any children. They can go sit and there's, you know, it's not a lot, get in and out much easier. Well, reality is they're short because they're made for wheelchairs. Absolutely. And so um, I brought this to the attention of the bishop. I'm like, you know, I went to a visit award in Texas and they actually had the little handicap placard on the pew. Can we do that? And they're like, I don't know. So they looked into it and um, at first they didn't do anything. And then eventually they actually did get little oh, placards and put on I'm those so things. Glad. Yeah. But nobody seemed to think. And so it was like a, it was like a handicapped parking spot. It right. was like, well, there's nobody here with the wheelchair. So I'll just sit here anyway. So I, I had this wonderful woman warrior who she would literally, if I had, if I hadn't gotten there yet with my son in his wheelchair and somebody sat there, she would get up from clear across the building, you know, and walk over there and say, oh. excuse me, this row is, you know, secure for wheelchairs. Yeah. Or she would tell people to leave. And I'm like, okay, I don't think I would have even done that. You yeah. Know? Oh, good for her. You know? So, yeah. So we That's were visiting a, a, a chapel in uh, Utah a couple of weeks ago, and they did have the last pew at the, that was a little bit shorter. And there was a handicapped placard there and there, there, were, there weren't any wheelchairs. But I, I find that amazing that just because you, you don't have to because supposedly you're giving back to church. And that's the pro that's where people that probably starts a lot of people down the rabbit hole is finding out that throughout church history, nothing is done until the law steps in and says, Absolutely. you can't do that anymore. And they go, oh, fine. And then they change their policy, including all of the recent changes in the temple ceremony. Yes. Those are all from, you know, social pressures of going, oh, we're not doing this anymore. They're like, fine. <sighs> They're like two-year-olds. Okay, fine. 100%. You know? <laughs> I, so I, for, I jotted this down specifically because I was like, I know something like this is going to come up when we're talking. Um, Bill real. So John Dillon posted something. It was like, you got to be careful what you criticize the church for. Cause they just might change it. I think referencing, you know, the recent temple changes um, right. and Bill real commented on it and said, here's to the ongoing restoration, catching up with the progress of the lost and fallen world. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> applicable to so many things, but that's what I thought when I drove by our, the building we used to attend was, you know, the church was behind, you know, way but years behind, decades behind the civil rights movement, you know, obviously right. are so far behind, you know, LGBTQ plus rights. Disability is just one other thing where, you know, why is it, you know, you going to this bishop to talk about, hey, could we have a placard here or me sharing that with my Relief Society president? Um, the church I was baptized into and the one that I felt like was being sold to me and that I believed in wholeheartedly was that this church was being led by prophets right? That communed with God and that it definitely, I mean, it, just all of these things are little shelf items for me then, right? Is it's like, you know, why, why is this not something that if this church is really led by, you know, heavenly father, th these progress things, we should be leading the way, right? Not right. trying to catch up all the time. So, right. Yeah. yeah. You, that they should be the one where, you know, every Mormon church that I've ever been to every building has a push button for people in yes, wheelchairs. Amazing. Isn't that right. amazing? Yeah, totally. that's exactly, yep. exactly right. And I think that that also plays into, I had an experience um, when TJ and I were out in the foyer, of course, and the, they just had let out of, of uh, the last Sunday school and this darling little boy came up to me and he just said, have you given TJ a blessing? And we said, yes, 
we have, you know, and I said, I said, you know, he got a blessing and we think that's why he's so strong and so happy. And, and he looked at me and he goes, I don't believe you and walked away. And I thought, I bet he had just come out of his primary class where he was taught about the healing process Absolutely. of blessings. And he came out and he saw this little boy and he thought, well, if blessings work, how come that kid's in a wheelchair? And so he was just so cute to come up to me and ask that question. And I just thought, huh. And, and like I said, I, I, I don't think I ever believed in the power because I think I was just, I'm, I'm kind of a realist. Um, and I didn't have any um, experiences with amazing healings and stuff. Sure. Um, so, and I, I, I've always been the skeptic where even, even as an active believer, when people would stand up and say, you know, my daughter, my son, my husband was diagnosed with cancer and he got a blessing and he's been in remission for 25 years. I'm like, yeah, but that guy died. Right. I've, I've always been skeptical of the idea that God was sitting up, you know, with his computer going, all right, who are we going yeah. to give cancer to today? You know? <laughs> right. Um, so that's always been skeptical. So so where, at what point did you and your husband go and we're done? Yeah. So, and what was the final straw? Absolutely. Yeah. So for, you know, from Max's Nick, you stay on it's for me, it was a lot of like, okay, I think I've kind of, I don't know where my testimony stands on the priesthood because these priesthood blessings, right? I don't know where my testimony stands on prayer because I'm praying all the time and things aren't changing. So little things like that, but it was in March of 2020 um, I came across the CES letter. Oh, first off, I first I came across ex-Mormon Reddit somehow. And for the life of me, I can't remember what I clicked on that led me to that. But I saw a couple things that I was like, whoa, like, wait, what? And I knew I was in shady territory, but um, something said, you know, s something on ex-Mormon Reddit mentioned the CES letter. And I was very much of, I, I think the quote is at the beginning of the CES letter that, you know, if we have the truth, Nothing should, I'm going to butcher it. You know, nothing yeah, should harm it, yeah, right? It yeah, should stand yeah, up to yeah. scrutiny. So yeah. I went into reading the CES letter thinking, you know, if I believe the church is true. So whatever I learn shouldn't be concerning. Or if it, I, I don't think I had opened up yet to the possibility of, is what I'm about to read really going to like shake my foundation? I just thought, right. I know the church. I've had a personal witness and feeling that the church is true. So I didn't feel scared to read it, you know, or like right. oh, this is ex-Mormon material. I should shy away from it. Um, right. So I read the CES letter and that was like, to me, I felt like after reading it, like if this is all true, I wanted to, you know, maybe on certain things, see, okay, where was that pulled from? You know, what was the primary source for this? But I think I, I knew then that night, if this is true, I'm done. Like on top of all the life experience things I've had that are telling me this doesn't add up, you know, in my heart, I'm feeling these things to see this concrete evidence of, um, you know, some of the biggest things for me, obviously learning the reality about like Joseph Smith's polygamy and polyand, like that's for so many people, I think that's a huge thing to learn mm -hmm. the extent, um, ages of wives, you know, was just shocking yeah, yeah. as, as someone, you know, I, Joseph Smith held such a special place in my heart, you know, as I think any true believing member, that was shocking. Right. Um, I think one of the things that really, really bothered me, and I think I mentioned this in the Mormon stories, was the first vision stuff. So mm -hmm. multiple accounts, but I also could kind of see, okay, maybe over time, 
maybe with all of us, the way we see something changes a little. What really bothered me was learning that um, church, early church members weren't taught about the first, you know, Joseph claimed it happened when it did, but kind of the backdating of it, that it wasn't until, mm -hmm. I can't remember the year, maybe 1832 or something, that yes. finally members were taught about the first vision. To me, that right. was like a clear red flag of clearly this was something that was fabricated to add legitimacy to this movement. Um, you know, to think that all these people joined the church, not even being told about the first vision. I mean, why right. would why would that be something that was held back, right? When you're trying to right. gain followers in this movement. So I don't know what it was about that, that backdating of like early members not being taught about the first vision and it didn't appear in Joseph's writing until this date was really um, shocking to me. So I think right. the CES letter overall, but definitely polygamy. Also some Book of Mormon stuff. I was aware of some of the end, like, I think it was in seminary when we did DNC, my seminary teacher had mentioned some of the anachronisms, but had, he never mentioned like tapers, but had some explanations for like, oh, well, this is what this could mean. Right. Right. Um, but like, you know, learning about view of the Hebrews, um, finding out that it was realistic that there was source material that Joseph could have drawn from to right. create the Book of Mormon. And it's interesting because with all the things going on with Max, where I feel like prayer, you know, all these things are kind of falling apart. For me, the Book of Mormon was like the anchor. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. but I know I've read the Book of Mormon multiple times. And every time I've prayed about it, Moroni's promise at the end, I have gotten that witness that it's, you know, I felt like I got a witness that it was real. So to me, even though other things were falling apart, I was like, I know this is something I can hold on to. And someday I'll get through this and my faith will be what it was before. So for the Book of Mormon, its legitimacy to fall apart, I think was kind of maybe maybe the yeah. nail yeah yeah I, I I found the same thing it, it's uh it's a matter of me coming to the understanding that humanity does not change that we are the same the idea that people walked across the plains singing and helping one another and pulling the oxen out of the mud and that everybody was happy and we were all just this joy and then you find out no they weren't there was always a complainy family that didn't do their part there's this this guy just stole your food you know this this it, the humanity is the same and so when i read um some of faith promoting books supposedly um and i found out more about how the corporation works mm. and some of the things that leaders had done that were just kind of tried to be whitewashed and pushed away and i started looking at it as a corporation and a very successful corporation and then i started looking at wait so you've got the, you know, the um, fraud that was done with the banking society in Nauvoo. Yes, yeah. Then you've got, then you've got a rock and the rock and the hat was a big thing. That for was me shocking too. Yeah. You know, I was in the primary, my kids, I raised all my kids. We were all singing book of Mormon stories in the car. And I had pictures of Joseph Smith and the gold plates up at the house. And so I thought, well, that was hidden and this mm -hmm. was hidden and this wasn't talked about. And this was whitewashed. And I thought, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, Joseph Smith, Bernie Madoff, it's all the same. And sure. that's when I kind of put everything together and went, okay, I can look at that as, hey, there's there's humans. And I'm, I am 100% behind saying, look, I know that George Patton was not the best man in the world, but he was a great general, right? Sure. I could, I could also then say when Brigham Young wasn't a perfect person and he might've been a great colonizer. The difference is George Patton, didn't say that everything he did came from God. Absolutely. It was a revelation. And this guy does. That's yep. my breaking point was like, 
I can believe infallibility and they're only men, but I can't believe that you just had a vision and Jesus told you that black people should not hold the priesthood. That's well the difference. Said. Very it's well that said. that power structure that comes down. But um, so here you are. Max is now how old? Nine. Yeah. So in 20, oh, he's seven now. Yeah. Max he's is seven, seven now. Just turned oh seven. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. I have to show, I have to show this little guy. Look at him. Look yeah. at that face. Oh my gosh. Probably, I'm trying to think that was 2018. So it was, I think he was almost three in that picture. I should have sent oh. you um, a more recent one. Yeah. Um, no, Max. You know, And I forgot. I didn't really mention this. I think so. The CES letter was like the final thing, but um, you know, definitely all of this, like the ableism in the church was a huge factor yeah. too, um, yes. which I discussed, you know, kind of what was maybe yeah. the highlight I think of my Mormon stories was I felt glad for a chance to talk about that, but um, yeah, Max is, you know, doing so well. And I feel so much, so much better now raising him outside of, you know, this kind of the mindset I felt like I had to put myself in before where mm -hmm. I, you know, love him wholly and don't have to, you know, like I said, put this either he was really good or really bad or that everything that happens, yeah. you know, has to be have some sort yeah. of faithful meaning to it. Just recognizing the disability is part of the human condition. Right. You know, and Max, there's things about his disabilities that make his life harder and there's things that make it really beautiful and like, you know, so exactly. unique. And um, that that's so valuable to me. I, I'm so glad to be raising him in this perspective rather than, um, you know, the way I might have thought about things before. So, yeah. And I loved I love thank you for bringing back the the idea that the theme of your Mormon stories was the ableism that you found in the church. And I remember as I was watching it that I related to it so well, because I remember sitting in that little pew uh, with my son. Uh, so he's in his wheelchair and then there's me. And then I had my grandson, our grandson lived with sure. us for a while. Okay. And so we were taking up that whole pew and the stake president was visiting on this particular Sunday. And he stood up and he said, you know, I look out and I see TJ and I think to myself, if TJ can be here every Sunday, doggone it, there's no excuse for me not to be here. And I was like, do you know how he got here? Did, did you, did, he didn't drive. He's not, you know, he, he's not a 30 year old man. Sure. I brought him here, you know? Yep. And so the idea that you don't even understand how this works because right. A, you don't have a child with a disability and B, you're a man. So yep. you don't even know what your wife the went first through thing. to get all those little bodies to church. Totally. But the, it was just so glossed over because they haven't experienced it. And right. I, I'm just as guilty. I, I don't have any people with disabilities in my family. Uh, my mom came from a family of eight siblings. There were no disabilities in her family. The, the most that they had was um, a, a couple of um, stillbirths. And that was traumatic for them. Most of my mom's sure. brothers and sisters had two children each. And uh, no, so none of my cousins had disabilities. Yeah. I did not live in that world. And so it was a completely new thing for me. I had no idea what it would be like. And now, like you say, I have so much empathy and understanding when I see people in their wheelchairs. And, you know, um, I've gone up to a couple of them and said, how did you get here? Do you have a wheelchair accessible vehicle? And they'll say, no. I'll say, how did you get that? You know, well, we had to fold it up and put it in the back of our car. And I'm like, I know, I know where you're coming from. Yeah. I know yeah. it's not easy. It's, it's when you sit in your house and you go, 
do I want to go to the store today? <sighs> okay, fine. And then you get to the driving, the parking lot of the grocery store and you circle around and you circle around until you right. can find a no spot spots. that's open. Yep. And it, I know that now. And that is the joy. That is the joy of experiencing things where the empathy is created and you, and you have such love and, and, uh, just concern for other people. And that sure. is, that is the beauty. That is the beauty of it. But, oh, well, Katie, I am so happy that you were willing to share your oh, experience. Likewise. I, Thank you for, you know, bringing me on. I feel honored. And it's, you just, I love your perspectives on everything. Uh, it's, it's been so wonderful. Well, and I love what you said that the, one of the greatest gifts that that Max has given you is that you have now gotten very involved in the disability community. So yeah. just ta finish off with just a little bit of what you're doing and and how you're involved. Yes, yeah. So um, there in our town, Laramie, there's uh, it's called the Laramie Advisory Commission on Disabilities. So our city council has these different boards and commissions. Um, there's like a housing one, you know, that they kind of are volunteer groups that um, help just address different things and work with the city council. And I think it was in 2019, I started volunteering on the commission and now I'm the chair of the commission. And just, we kind of do disability awareness and um, working on accessibility issues in town. And I've, you know, it feels like I'm doing some active work to make the world a better place for Max and a place that's more accessible. And which is powerful to me because I feel like so much of the narrative with the church was um, that Max or people with disabilities needed to change, right? That, oh, someday they'll have the perfect body and then yes. it'll be good. Someday, yes. you know, all these different things where, you know, the way I look at it now is like we need, let's make the world more accessible rather than yeah. putting the onus on, you know, um, people with disabilities to somehow become more able-bodied. I, it feels very empowering to me to do what I can to try and make the world more accessible. So I feel, I, I feel grateful to be part of it, um, you know, and to do even just the tiniest bit. And it's been amazing too to, like you said, the empathy and connection to meet other people with disabilities or with children with disabilities. You know, it was so hard to feel like when Max is in the NICU, we kind of lost, we're losing our tribe. This ward that, like I said, felt like a second family to feel that kind of falling away and to never really quite get it back, even once we were back in Laramie, um, right. to find that in like other people that are involved in the disability community, to find that in the ex-Mormon community. And it yeah. feels to me so much more um, authentic and like powerful. I absolutely did love our ward for sure. And there was wonderful people, but there's not this sense of anymore you know, it's just because we live in the same area, maybe that this is, you know, or some sense of I feel like I have to serve because that's what, you know, is expected of me. Um, and again, I definitely had some genuine, lots of genuine friendships, but there's always, I think, that element of, you know, you know, someone's reaching out because they've been told to, right, rather than right. because they, they really maybe want to love you and serve you. And um, to have now found that in these other spaces that, like I said, feel so genuine and authentic and, real and you can exist in that gray and admit that you don't know all the answers and admit that it's hard and sucks sometimes, you know, that's been like really wonderful. So that's so great. And I love that exactly what you're doing. If you hadn't, and this is just my opinion, but I believe that if you had not left the church with the high demands that it has, you would not have been free with three little children to devote the time that you're doing to make a change in this world. I love that you said that, that Thanks. we need to make a change in this world because 
you can have faith and you can believe whatever you want to, but we don't know. And right. it, that was one of the things that um, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable not knowing I'm okay. I had strangers that would reach out to me after our son passed away and say things like just envision him running into the arms of Jesus. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I don't have yeah. to envision that. I don't have to envision him being with his grandfather for me to find peace and contentment. I know that we get, we did everything we could to make his life on Absolutely. this earth the best it could possibly be. And what you're doing now in the community is helping other people live their best life right Thanks. now. That's and really kind I, of I you. I love that. Thank you. No, and you're right. If it, if I was still, you know, attend doing all of the so much of, you know, attending the temple, all these things that pull on your time, I wouldn't be able to do this. And I, right. it would be such a huge thing that would be missing that I wouldn't right. even know, you know, so I, I'm so grateful for the chance to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but you know, my husband and I started a foundation that oh. we have now just closed down foundation. Nonprofits are hard. <laughs> they take imagine. a lot of people. Sure. And so, but we had a foundation for six years where we uh, helped families purchase wheelchair accessible vehicles. Oh, wow. And I think, and I had a really good friend. She's just the loveliest person. And she and her husband left the church. She started giving us a hundred dollars here, a hundred dollars there. Um, because she says, well, I'm not paying my tithing anymore. I'm contributing to charities that I feel are, have a good source. Yes. We also had a family, uh, this, and this is the most beautiful example of Christ-like behavior. She's in a wheelchair. Her daughter is in a wheelchair. We were able to give them a wheelchair accessible vehicle. Oh. And she started contributing $100 a month to the That's foundation. Incredible. Even though she's on a fixed income. And sure. I mean- and I just think the amount of cash that the people in our ward were contributing, if they would have given that to our foundation, we would have been able to serve so many people. Absolutely. And instead it's being held up at Ensign Peak with the Tesla sure. stock. But that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> it <right>? is. I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we both could go on forever about that. But I mean, how exactly. wonderful. It sounds like you're doing the exact same thing. You know, like right. I can only imagine the people while, you know, the foundation was there how the huge difference that made in their lives. So that's right, incredible. Right. How cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Katie. If you ever, oh, dis you. now what are Laramie, what's Laramie doing? Do you have 75 feet of snow? Uh, yeah, what's pretty, your some snow on the ground? It's pretty cold out right now. I, even though I grew up here, I don't want to live here forever. The, the long <laughs> winter is too much for me. So I, um, I would eventually like to live somewhere warmer. So yeah, we'll that was one of the reasons we moved to Arizona. Was yeah. We, you know, we lived in the Pacific Northwest, which is gorgeous, but it's gorgeous because it rains every day. Sure. And it got to the point where, you know, it's like, can I push a wheelchair and hold an umbrella yes. and put a blanket over his legs? And then, you know, it's like, I don't want to, I'm just not going to. Same go thing with Max. Today. I want to live somewhere where it's easy to get him outside every day. And, you know, and it's not the snow, ice, wind, like, you know, yeah. being outside to me is so healing. In. Yeah. You know, I love being yeah, outside. Yeah. He loves being outside. The winter is long and so cold here. Like I, I definitely have my sights on somewhere warmer. So Ooh, excellent. Yeah. Well, one more thing I wanted to ask yeah. you, because I know one of the things that literally saved my life was when he, when our son was three, there was a preschool program that was set up by the uh, Tri-Counties. Mm -hmm. And there literally was a bus that would pick him up at three and take him to a preschool. And that was the first time that I was able to go work in the school with my other kids or oh, go out to lunch yeah. with girlfriends or go for yep. a run or something like that. 
And so then the he got into the school system from you know 7:30 in the morning till 3:30 in the afternoon. Yeah. The school bus would pick him up, and it gave me a chance to have some kind of a normal life. Um, but but our son, even though he he did have some um, not he had um, asthma a little bit. That we found out that was more a dairy intolerance than it oh, was wow. truly yeah. asthma. And he did have some GERD issues where he had to have the Nissen sure. flandoplication. Yeah. Um, so there were true. some respiratory things, but we also weren't dealing with COVID. So I know you said that Max is home because he has he is a little bit more fragile. Yeah. Respiratory wise. So is that why he's doing Zoom school versus yes. actually attending school? Okay. Yeah. So he um, was Zooming into preschool and then Zoomed into kindergarten is currently Zooming into first grade. And I'm there helping him. Uh, really, though, I that, talk about a finding a community. His teachers and therapists are just some of the best people I've ever met. I feel so grateful. This happens to be the school district we live in, that that's who we're with. Um, yep. But yeah, our hope is that maybe so, you know, COVID, but also like flu and RSV too this year seem to be so bad. Yes. Yeah, that we right now are still keeping him home. I'm hoping though, maybe by April or ish, we can maybe try having Max go to school. And the plan right now, it's hard because it's his ventilator is like its own like thing almost in terms of being yeah. trained on it all and stuff. So the plan is for me to attend with him um, to kind yeah. of do kind of the medical things um right. but I know like you're like when you describe that that you having a chance to have some time to yourself and then TJ having that independence um I watched a movie with some disabled adults in it and one of the main things they said was I, I guess some of them were teenagers some were adults was um as grateful as they were for their parents love and care like wa wanting some independence like that so right. I hope there's a time where Max can go to school on his own you know just to get to experience that and free up my time some, but, um, where his medical stuff is right now kind of needs like yeah. an expert that, and I know like some families I know that live in like Colorado, bigger areas, um, the school like hires a nurse to attend with their kid that's trained on all of this, but that's oh. not something in our town that really, there's no like pediatric nursing agencies right, that right. work with kids with trachs. Um, so I, I'm happy to do it and excited to do it. I it feels like a nice transition to going with mom at first, you yeah. know, and kind of seeing, yeah. Um, that is but yeah, great. so I, I'm hoping that he, his class is so amazing too. Like the kids run up to the zoom and know him so well and love to talk to him. Uh, so I'm really excited for him to get to eventually go in person and, you exactly. know, have these it was a great experience. He loved it. Yeah. He, he would wake up in the morning and say, bus, bus. Oh, and I, I remember when he turned 21 and he aged out of the school system, uh, and he, and we, we moved to a different, uh, little city. Yeah. And I remember he would wake up and he would say, bus, bus. And oh. I would say, no bus, dude, it's, it's over. It's just you yeah. and me. And he would get mad because it was a huge social. I mean, he had brothers and sisters like, like, like Max will have. He, yeah. he had Sam there that would say, you know, Hey, him, he became one of the gang with his, with his totally. brothers and sisters. And it was a great experience, but we weren't dealing with COVID and RSV and all the other things at that right. time. So yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, but no, he's, I, again, so grateful for the teachers that support us and um, just so happy with how he's doing, where he's at, all of it. So, 
Yeah. Oh, so I love your attitude. Well, you're you're beautiful, and I I was so oh, you too, so happy to find you through Mormon stories, and thank you so much. And I wish the best for you and Max, and I want you, you to come back in a couple of years and talk about where is everything at at this point. Oh, and, I would love that. I continue. I'm so glad you reached out because I you're I've been listening to the podcast. Love it. You had you know so many amazing women on with so many amazing perspectives. So. I'm so glad that you've started this and um, I'm going to keep you. listening for sure. Thank you so much. Very Renee. good. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a great Sunday. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh. Did I not tell you? She's amazing, right? Yeah. Three little kids. Um, one with special needs and she's doing such a great job. And I love that she's gotten involved in the disability community and that she's doing her part to help others that have uh, disabilities. So thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next week on She Became Visible.